At the same time as preparations were being made at home to commemorate the first anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, the 36th Ulster Division were making preparations of their own for yet another defining battle. One of the most notable successes of the First World War came in 1917 at the Battle of Messines where the 36th Ulster Division and the 16th Irish Division famously worked in close cooperation. The German army had occupied the Messines Ridge area since 1914 and it provided them with an excellent vantage point on an area of high ground. The Allies believed that by taking the ridge and the German strong point of Whitesheet they could gain an initiative. It's evident that harsh lessons had been learned from the catastrophic losses of 1916, particularly at the Somme. Preparations were more intense and several tactical components were combined to great effect. Mining, for example, was particularly successful on this occasion. In preparation for an assault on the ridge, tunnels had been dug underneath the German lines and were packed with approximately 500 tonnes of high explosives. Eight days of intense bombardment followed and saw three and a half million shells rain down on the German positions. And this was followed by an infantry advance under a creeping barrage that was supplemented by airplanes and tanks. The decision to place the 16th Irish Division and the 36th Ulster Division in close proximity was purely a military one. Indeed, the divisions might have been amalgamated had it not been for political opposition at home from Sir Edward Carson and John Redmond. Nevertheless, there are examples of both good and bad relations between the men of the two divisions and it would be wrong to suggest the political and religious feeling had simply dissipated on the Western Front. During the month of May 1917, the 10th Royal Irish Rifles, the South Belfast Volunteers, had been practising attacks over dummy trenches in preparation for the main assault at Messines Ridge on the 7th of June. At zero hour, which was 3.10am, the tunnelled mines were detonated resulting in horrific consequences but succeeded in dislodging the Germans from the hills. It was said that the mines could be felt and heard as far away as London. Germans appear to have been taken by surprise by the assault, presumably due to the unconventional timing of it. The mines though caused huge craters that in some cases led the men to lose their direction in the early stages of the infantry attack. Nevertheless, as the battle unfolded, the 16th Irish and 36th Ulster Divisions fought in close proximity and successfully achieved their objectives by early morning on the 7th of June. The 8th, 9th, 10th and 15th Royal Irish Rifles were part of an assaulting wave on the morning of the 7th of June 1917 and men from Sandy Row were in each of those units. Sergeant William Bridget, for example, was with D Company, the 9th Royal Irish Rifles, the West Belfast Volunteers. William was the son of William and Annie Bridget of Great Victoria Street and the Bridgets were a well-known family in Orange Circles. William Senior, for example, was a designer and painter of banners commissioned by Orange Lodges across Ireland, Britain, Canada and the United States of America. He was also a senior Orange man himself, who held a number of prominent positions including Deputy Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, as well as being a trustee of Sandy Row Orange Hall. His wife Annie, as discussed in a previous episode on Sandy Row Orange Hall itself, was the first worshipful mistress of Ireland's ladies LOL number one. 
This fact is inscribed on her headstone in Belfast City Cemetery, as is a memorial inscription for her son, Sergeant William Bridget, who died at Messines aged just 20. Another example is Sergeant William Watson of the 8th Royal Irish Rifles, the East Belfast Volunteers, who had an address at 4 and 6 Maxwell Street in Sandy Row. Watson was 33 years old when he died and was buried at Lone Tree Cemetery in Belgium. Around this time, a Sandy Row man was decorated for gallantry in the battlefield. On the 30th of June 1917, the Belfast Weekly Telegraph reported that two brave doctors were to be decorated. The commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force made an immediate award of a military cross to Captain William Scott of the Royal Irish Fusiliers from Concora Avenue in East Belfast, but also to Captain Albert Victor Craig of the Royal Army Medical Corps from 189 Sandy Row. The citation noted that the medal had been awarded, quote, for conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty. Though suffering himself from the effect of gas shells, he displayed the greatest bravery and the most untiring energy in attending to the wounded under fire of heavy guns and gas shells. He risked his life day and night without the slightest of hesitation. It was noted elsewhere that the lasting effects of those gas shells undoubtedly contributed to Craig's premature death after the war. In July 1917, then, Private James Dixon of the 13th Royal Welsh Fusiliers succumbed to wounds which he had received in action. Dixon, who was just 19 years old, had an address at 92 and 94 Sandy Row. His brother had died with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles in November of 1915. The balmy weather of Messines changed dramatically to heavy rain by the end of July. It was a sign of things to come though at Passchendaele. Richard Grayson has written of how many veterans felt that Passchendaele was much worse than the Somme. One of those veterans, Jack Christie, who was a Shankill Road man, said that while he had some happy times on the Somme, Ypres was never like that. Ypres was hell from beginning to end. Another veteran, George McBride, of the 15th Royal Irish Rifles, recalled, It was awful. We were up to our knees in muck and water. I was glad to see the back of it. It was in these conditions that Sergeant John Murphy was killed in action at the Battle of Langmark on the 16th of August 1917. Murphy, who had an address at 8 Lawyer Street in Sandy Row, was with A Company, the 1st Royal Irish Rifles. His body was never recovered, and today he's commemorated at the Tyne Cot Memorial in Belgium. By late 1917, it seemed that there was hardly a month that went by when the Sandy Road District didn't lose someone in the war. On the 27th of September, Gunner Robert Beattie of the 44th Battery Royal Field Artillery died as a result of dysentery. The fact that he died in Iraq and is buried in Baghdad reminds us that for Sandy Row this really was a world war beyond simply the Western Front. Beattie, who was aged 31, had lived at 38 Teutonic Street with his wife Sarah. In November there was Private William Hamilton Clegg of A Company, the 1st Battalion Cameron Highlanders, who were a Scottish regiment. Clegg, aged 22, had an address at 2 Sturgeon Street and is commemorated today on the Tynecott Memorial in Belgium. Then in December, there was the loss of Private Samuel Emerson of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. Emerson was an old soldier, having served in the Boer War. Though prior to enlisting, he was employed at Inglis's Bakery in Belfast. 
he left behind a wife and child at 14 Moors Place in Sandy Row. Another Christmas came and went for the Sandy Row men at the front, and although they weren't to know it at the time, 1917 was to be their last wartime winter. The early part of 1918 brought a restructuring of the British Army, resulting in smaller brigades across the force. The 36th Ulster Division were not exempt, and for the 10th Royal Irish Rifles, the South Belfast Volunteers, this meant the disbandment of the battalion on the 20th of February 1918. In March, the Allies came very close to losing the war during what was known as the German Spring Offensive. The Germans devoted much of their resources towards one final attempt to win the war, and they pushed the Allies back 42 miles in the process, having broken through the lines on the 23rd of March. It was during this Spring Offensive that Rifleman Henry Hawkey of 24 Gaffigan Street lost his life. Hawkey, aged 28, had been with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles, but at the time of his death was attached to the Machine Gun Corps. Well-coordinated British counter-attacks using a combination of tanks, artillery, ground and air forces, lessons which were learnt from the Somme, helped turn the tide and the Germans could not recover. The war was rapidly reaching a conclusion. In April, the Germans were dealt a series of blows, for example at Zeebrugge, where several Belfast men took part. And from July 1918, the German army as a whole was driven back towards its homeland. Little more than six months after threatening Paris, the German Empire had collapsed. Rifleman Samuel James Clark of the 2nd Royal Irish Rifles from 16 Gaffigan Street and Sergeant David Hiles of the 1st King's Royal Rifle Corps, who was from 36 Boyne Square, were lost in July and August respectively. Hiles died from the effects of gas poisoning and is buried in Belfast City Cemetery. He had previously been awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal, as mentioned in an earlier episode. In September, driver Thomas Moore of the Royal Field Artillery from 63 Sandy Row and John Mulholland of 20 Boyne Square were both lost. Mulholland, who was aged just 16, was serving with the 3rd Royal Irish Fusiliers when he died in Ipswich Hospital and he's buried in Dundonald Cemetery. In November then, and as the war was drawing to a close, Harry Moore of 15 Eureka Street was awarded the Military Medal while serving with the Royal Engineers. A few days later, Rifleman John Edmondson was lost while serving with the 7th Royal Irish Rifles. Edmondson, aged 45, was from 20 Begg Street, and he's also buried in Belfast City Cemetery. On the 10th of November, battalion war diaries then were noting rumours of peace, and they were right, because on the 11th of November, the Germans had ceased to fight. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the armistice was signed, and Europe at last was at peace. The Great War was over. It's said that Enniskillen was the first place to learn about the armistice, having picked up a faint radio message at 6.30am on the 11th of November 1918. It had brought the curtain down on a four-year period of misery and uncertainty, not just for servicemen, but for the entire population. The hope was that things could go back to normal, the way they were before the war. And British soldiers are known to have sang, When this lousy war is over, no more soldiering for me. When I get my civvy clothes on, oh how happy I shall be. But things could never be the same as they were before. 
Huge debts incurred due to the conflict meant that the UK had to endure a period of post-war austerity and the UK economy lay in tatters. Independence movements became more vociferous in India and in Ireland. Indeed, there is an historical argument that the First World War, rather than cease in 1918, mutated into a series of revolutions and counter-revolutions across Europe, particularly here in Ireland. From 1919 to 1921, the War of Independence raged, mostly in the south of Ireland, it has to be said, while in the north of Ireland was ravaged by sectarian violence between 1920 and 1922. The violence was particularly intense in Belfast, where organisations such as the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Ulster Special Constabulary and the Irish Republican Army took war veterans into their ranks. These battle-hardened veterans were capable of taking street violence to unprecedented levels as a result of their experiences of war. And as a result, their skills were highly sought after on both sides, including by the IRA. In terms of the human cost of the First World War, between 7 and 8 million people had been killed and 20 million had been wounded. And this does not take into consideration the psychological impact of the war on those who had served, but also on those who remained at home. The anxiety faced by families who awaited news on loved ones undoubtedly had an impact which would be near impossible to assess today. Furthermore, the Spanish flu had killed between 20 and 50 million people between 1918 and 1919. This generation lived through a real-life nightmare. In November 1918, as the battlefront fell silent, the home front exploded with joy as news of the armistice was heralded by the sounding of ship's sirens that echoed across the city of Belfast. Belfast, though, was less able to celebrate the armistice than other cities across the UK. And it's with some degree of irony, given our current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, that the Belfast Telegraph carried a front-page notice advising of a, quote, influenza outbreak. The notice, which was initially issued on the 7th of November, stated that the Public Health Committee advised all schools and places of public entertainment to close for 10 days. It also advised people to avoid crowds a warning that re remained in place until December 1918. It appears, though, that the public health notice was not adhered to by all. In the shipyards at Queen's Island and Workman and Clark, thousands of workers raised deafening cheers of relief in scenes that were, quote, without parallel in the history of the city. Some workers opted to take holiday leave, meaning that by 12pm, Royal Avenue and Castle Place were thronged by enthusiastic crowds. At the close of the school day, children joined with impromptu parades on the streets, which were lined with flags that had appeared in an impressive display of haste. Across the city, sporadic bonfires were lit, fireworks were shot into the sky. Armistice Day in Belfast, as it was elsewhere, was welcomed by a highly charged and emotional outpouring of relief and joy. In many ways, though, the end was not the end, uh, as Sandy Row men continued to die as a result of their experience of the war. Rifleman William Davis, for example, of 103 Charles Street South, died on the 21st of November 1918. He had been transferred from the Royal Irish Rifles to the Labour Corps prior to his death. 
Also, Private Joseph Morrison of 19 Boyne Square, who died on the 27th of December 1920, over two years after the war had ended. Both Davis and Private Joseph Morrison are buried in Belfast City Cemetery. Nevertheless, these post-war casualties are a blunt reminder that the outpouring of relief and joy which was witnessed in Belfast on the 11th of November 1918 was far from a unanimous experience. For those that had lost loved ones, the end of the war was in fact the cruel beginning of a post-war period of mourning and sorrow. For those that clung to precious hope that their loved one might yet be located, the war lingered on in their minds because an end to the war might mean an end to their hope, and an end to the hope meant that a loved one would not be returning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Historical Belfast podcast. This was part three of three, looking at Sandy Row and the Great War. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please remember to give the podcast a five-star rating and review, particularly if you're listening via Apple Podcasts. Before I finish, I just want to share with you a short advert for another podcast which may be of interest to you. The Troubles in Northern Ireland was an extremely volatile 30-year period in which thousands of people were killed on both sides of the conflict. The Troubles podcast is an introduction to the major events that occurred during the Troubles. It is a non-partisan, true crime style podcast that explains the motivations and planning behind the attacks, as well as the consequences. The first few episodes are out now and cover a range of different events, including when Lord Louis Mountbatten was blown up at sea by the IRA, as well as the Shankill Butchers, who are the most prolific serial killers in the United Kingdom. You can find the podcast at shows.acast.com slash the Troubles podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts.